Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yes! Again, have to be careful of the speed. What a comeback season for Hal Sutton. Come right back toward the hole. everybody welcome to another be the right club today podcast excited about our next guest mr travis fulton travis travis was the former director of instruction at the tbc of sawgrass a place how know and loves real well former instructional host on the golf channel he's the current host of the stripe show podcasts travis welcome on to the be the right club day podcast hey how you guys doing we're great so travis tell me something What's it like being the director of instruction at uh, TPC Sawgrass with all those great players around there all the time? <laughs> well, it was a great experience. Um, you know, when we built it, uh, the academy there, we were down at the World Golf Village also, which is, um, is a great spot just south, as you know, in St. Augustine. Yeah. And had a beautiful building there. And then we went out to TPC Sawgrass, which is like just even another level of excitement and people you know, coming in to, to play the stadium course, which you know a thing or two about, of course. And, um, um, and you know, just hanging there. It's, it's like one of those places where you can have guests come in and just do everything kind of the same as the best players in the world are doing. You're rubbing shoulders, hitting balls next to Vijay Singh and Jim Furyk and other players that are using the same facilities that you are hitting hitting the same balls, going out and playing the golf course, having lunch inside. So you're really a part of the action there um, as far as hanging with the best players, playing a, one of the top golf courses in the world. So it was a great experience to get that place going and off the ground. And, um, you know, Todd Anderson took the reins over there a few, few years back, and they're doing great. Travis, tell us if, a little bit about some of your mentors, um, golf instruction-wise. Who'd you learn from? Um, yeah, go go a little bit into that. Yeah, so I um, you know, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest originally and um started teaching in 99, moved to Florida or moved to Arizona and uh, started with a group called Resort Golf. Scott Sackett was the uh, director of instruction at the time, traveled the country with these guys and um eventually we ended up getting the PGA Tour license, that's what brought us to Florida. And um, you know, rubbed shoulders with a lot of great teachers down here, learned a great deal from, you know, in, in, in Florida, it's a Mecca, right? There's, there's teachers everywhere here in Florida and to be able to spend time with like Todd Sones on the short game and Chuck Evans on, you know, the, the, the swing itself, um, you know, David Ledbetter down in, down in Orlando. And, um, you know, there's just, there's just, there's a lot of them that have come through that, um, that I've spent time with and I'm kind of a nut. So I'm, I'm always, 
you know, kind of reading and, and watching videos. And even though I haven't met some of these guys, you know, I've always been kind of looking at their stuff. And I would say, Scott, really, he kind of got me going in it, not just from a technique standpoint, but just in the business itself and running academies and what it takes to be successful in this industry as far as, you know, being able to, to make a, a nice living teaching the game and, and what that takes. Um, so he was a good influence. Todd Stones was a good influence on me. Um, again, not just from a short game standpoint, but also just a overall business standpoint. A guy by the name of Lynn Blake, who probably doesn't get a lot of credit. He's a great teacher, um, old golfing machine teacher, just really yeah. wise beyond his years. He, yeah. he always had a great influence on me. I spent a lot of time with him. And, um, you know, the list just goes on and on in today's game with the Jeff Smiths, the George Gankis, the, um, you know, Chris Comas of the world who will be on my podcast on Thursday. You know, the, it's just an endless list of being influenced by guys that know what they're doing. It's, it's kind of interesting. You mentioned Chuck Evans. Um, I did some time with, uh, I worked for a company called MySwing, a little 3D motion yeah. company for a while. And Chuck was, Chuck had moved out to Arizona and we spent a ton of time together. Chuck's a good guy. I really like, I really like Chuck a lot. Another, another yeah. TGM or two, a lot, a lot of golfing machine background between Chuck and <laughs> Chuck and, uh, and Liam Blake for sure. Yeah. When I was, when I was young, you know, they, I was kind of, you know, Chuck and I shared an office for probably three years and he kind of fed it to me, you know, every single day. So I was, I went through all the certification, just sharing the office with them, um, which was a great start. You know, I, I think that book was above its really kind of ahead of its time. I mean, there's no book that has the answers to everything, but there was a lot of great stuff there that really, you know, kind of got me thinking down this line. Chuck Cook was another guy that, you know, certainly was a part of that. And I've spent some time with him and, but um, yeah, it makes you think, right. That book makes you kind of think a little bit. And then from there you, you just, things evolve with the way that we can measure stuff now and, and understand how the swing works. And, you know, it's become much more specialized and scientific now, as you know. How you've got that book on your, uh, in, on your bookshelf. Did you ever read the golfing machine from front to back? Uh, yes, I have, but I'm not sure <laughs> I absorbed it all. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things in there that I agree with and a lot of things that I, don't necessarily agree with, uh, uh, you know, you might be interested in this, Travis, you know, I was a player all my life. I didn't <laughs> teach all the time. The ball told me everything that I needed to know. And, you know, when we first started down this path, uh, we were out at big easy and we had a nice range and we'd open up the doors. We had track man, we had everything and kids would hit the ball and they'd watch it for a second. And before the ball even hit the ground, they'd be looking at the data. <laughs> Nothing aggravated me more than that because the ball told them what the numbers are fixing to tell them. But they were more interested in what the numbers said. And so, you know, I used to kind of get a little bit angry at them. It's like, hey, wait a minute. Uh, you, got, you can't take this out on the tour with you. You can't take this to your next college match you can't take this to your high school match but you can take your knowledge to the next one you know so that brings me to another point you know you mentioned the science involved in this there is science involved in this but there's art in it too yeah oh yeah so 
why don't you give us your take on all that? Well, I think you have to, I think it's a balance always. Right. <clears throat> and I think there's players who <clears throat> really benefit from the science for sure. Uh, there's times for it to show them to quantify, as you know, how working with tour players, um, you know, tour players can be stubborn, right? Cause you got, you guys are setting your, you're setting your ways and, and you're, you're making money for a living and you're that 0.001%. And it's like, when you're working with that quality of player, sometimes showing them and being, having something that can quantify a little bit of the difference tends to help. But from there, the reality is, is the player has to be able to, to take whatever it is that is being changed or different out and play competitive golf with it, right? That's, that's the bottom line and it has to be successful and you have to, you have to show value in that. So it's always a balance. I think you have to be careful. Um, I can remember at TBC Sawgrass, there were times where I would have a player, good player, and I would, I know they were starting to get too reliant on the technology to your point They'd hit a shot. They'd look at it. It hit a shot. They'd look at it. And that's when I like, look, Let's get out of here. You know, it's becoming too detrimental. You're, you're too fixated on what it's telling you rather than where the ball's going and being instinctive and being a golfer and then figuring out how to get the ball in the hole from there. So it can be overbearing and it can be, um, it can have too much of a role. And I think that's up to the teacher to, to balance that out. I'm not probably the most technical teacher. I like to, to see it. Um, I like to balance it in but I'm certainly not leaning on it or hiding behind it. Right. And I think there's a lot of teachers who will look at it and there's a number and getting into teaching today, you, you can get so much further along how than when I was in the industry 23 years ago, because there's so much more available now, like this has been measured and we know that this is happening to this. And this. so you can kind of educate yourself a little bit quicker, but I think at the end of the day, that, experience of balancing that out with a player really just comes from, you know, you have to get those reps and you learn as you go on what's best on how much to introduce that technology to each player. Well, a word that I use around here a lot is you've got to have permission to make a change from yourself. And that's certainly true with a really, really good player because he's dealing with a known and he's trying to make money with that known. Mm -hmm. And so prove it to me as to why I need to make this change because a really good player knows the amount of effort and time that it takes to make change. Yeah. You know, most of the other people that are listening to this, they have no idea when it comes to time and effort to make change. And, you know, to a, a seasoned uh, professional, uh, he spent a lot of time getting it to where it's at. And, you That's know, right. I can recall months of working on something that I could see very little difference on video. Now, if I'd have had the stuff that we have today, I might have seen some difference. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the stuff that we had available to us, it was pretty hard to see the differences of a month's worth of work. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I'll tell you a quick story. A guy that, you know, um, when I was teaching a lot, I, I worked with Fred Funk as, as you play a lot of yeah. golf with Fred. I taught Taylor when he was young here in Ponte Vedra. And there was a time and I think Fred was like 50, I don't know, two 53, maybe. And, you know, track man was starting to 
kind of make its way onto the scene, right? And we had a track man, we were hitting shots and how Fred hit one degree down on his driver. And Fred's one of the straightest drivers ever, right? To play right. the game. Yeah. And so he's asking, he's asking me questions. He's like, so if I hit one degree up on it, then I can hit the ball another probably 10 to 12 yards longer, right? I'm like, well, in theory, yeah, because if, you know, if the tack angle was a little more up and we could launch it, you know, a little higher, less spin, like that, we know those things at that point based off track, man. So he's like, well, let me see if I can hit up on it. So he starts trying to hit up on it one or two degrees. And all of a sudden how he starts, you know, kind of hanging back a little bit more. And, and what happened was, is, is he caught, he, he, you know, when he would square it up, it was like, oh, wow, another 10 yards. And that was huge for Fred because he wasn't one of the longest. But the reality was where I'm going to the story is I'm thinking to myself at the time, I'm like, Fred, I really don't want you to try to hit one or two degrees up. I know in theory you'll hit it longer, but you can't play with that. You're the straightest driver right now on tour. So to try to go one or two degrees more up and spray it everywhere for another eight yards, I don't think that weighs out. You know, I don't think that's going to do very well for you. And that's a, an example of the conversations that you would have in using video because Fred couldn't take that to the course and play with that. It was, it was too different. It was too erratic from where he was coming from. And it didn't make sense for another eight, nine, 10 yards. And then for him to miss the fairways that he was hitting it at the distance that he was. Yeah. I mean, to go from really short and dead straight to short and crooked or more crooked is, is a scary proposition. And that's one thing Hal always talks about. You know, tour players have to be very careful chasing weakness, going after their weaknesses because they'll they'll forget about their strengths. And what made Fred so good was the fact that he hit every fairway. And if you take some of that away, you're you know you're really limiting him. You're taking away his weapon, right? Um, Travis, what do you think about how are in your opinion how are tour players using TrackMan? How are they using the radars when they're all set up on the range? There's a lot of our kids will ask us, do they know all the numbers? And my argument is most of them don't. Most of them are using it for a pure radar rather than, you know, a distance measuring device versus diving into low point, diving into angle of attack, diving into pass, swing direction, all that stuff. Yeah, I think so. I think that's accurate. Um, they're using it to um, more for distance, right? Like what, what is the carry distance, um, gapping wedges, those kinds of things. I mean, Dustin Johnson bought a track man and the only thing that he has up on there is the carry distance, you know? So when he's hitting his wedge, the carry distance of his wedge, he wants to know. I think the other thing track man will help as they're playing in different elevations, um, you know, temperatures and things like that. You can quantify how far the ball is going to travel based upon where you are in the country. Right. So I think kind of, am I, you know, what is, what is it? 1%? Is it 3%? What's the difference, right. In carry distance in some of the different parts of the country that you might be playing. And then I think just like, as they're warming up and they're hitting and, you know, you know, as, as Hal knows, your body feels different every day. Right. So do I need to bring a few yards off of that? Am I a little amped up today? And do I need to add a few yards? So I think, Every day that you see it out there, I think that carry distance um, is, a, is, is the big one. But, yeah, they're not diving into, at least I hope not, they're not diving into all these other swings or these other numbers that TrackMan has given you. I love the way you said you hope not. So that means you don't think that's in the best 
uh, interest of a really good player to know all of those facts out there. And I think it's really good that we say that on here because there's some pretty good players that listen to this and, you know, they don't need to be caught up in that. Myself, I go out to play right now after looking at this all day long, you know, I go out to play and I'm thinking, okay, what is Hal Sutton going to concentrate on today? Do you find yourself doing the same thing, Travis, when you go out to play and you're giving lessons all the time? I mean, where is your game in this? My game? My game is, um, <laughs> you know, how I'm probably a, a, a scratch player, um, one handicap somewhere in there. So when I go play, I don't practice a lot. When I go play, I basically just go out and have fun. Like I have no expectation because I know that, look, I'm capable of shooting one or two under. And so when I go out and shoot four over, instead of getting mad, knowing I'm not putting the time into it to practice my own game, you know, it is what it is. Um, but I go back to your point that you said about the players. Like there's a lot of good players listening to this. And when, when good players have all of these things available to them, you know, like, what are you trying to do? Like, are you trying to play golf swing? Or are you trying to go out and, and shoot a score? Right. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. I mean, at the end of the day, professional golfers like yourself, how what they're great at is going out and making a score and being instinctive. And that's the, that's the bottom line. I think it's really easy to get caught up into too many little things of playing golf swing of this and that and this and that. And pretty soon, you know, it just, you become inundated and you become too technical and then you kind of lose like the art of it, of going out and playing golf. Jordan Spieth, I think it's a great example. Jordan Spieth is an absolute genius in my opinion. Like he's an artist, he's a genius of playing the game. And we saw it for the better part of two years, how, where, you know, he kind of lost his swing and he's, and he's working on things and there's a lot of backswing things that he's trying to do. And he couldn't do all those things and hit the ball. And it kind of got to a point where they had to reverse engineer it, where it's like, look, where do you want to be at impact to hit a fade? We can't hit this hook. So what do you want to feel like when you hit a fade? All right. Well, I want to feel like this, you know, you know, and kind of get into it and hit it. Right. And don't, and not get caught up in what the club is doing so much. And at that point, when he kind of made it more instinctive and, not so position oriented. That's when he started to, you know, kind of take off and start being Jordan Spieth and hitting shots and playing the game again. So um, it's a balance of it. It's very a sensitive thing when a player, I don't, that's never been my business model. I'd never really wanted to get into that how and travel the tour with tour players. Y'all crazy. I mean, you guys drive me up the wall anyway. Um, <laughs> um, but you know, when you're, when you're, when you're working with a player like that, you know, it's sensitive, like, you know, when you're making change and getting in there, cause you're dealing with that, with the livelihood. And we know what, what at the end of the day, you guys can't be thinking, you have to be playing the game. You have to be playing. That's what makes you great. And if you're thinking and you're thinking about this and this and this to make that happen, you know, it, that's going to catch up with you eventually. Well, that's why I go back to the point that I brought up, you know, you've mentioned science and I threw the art in there. And so I'm going to, for everybody out there, uh, I'm going to go ahead and explain a couple of things. Most of the tour players are artists. Yeah. They're not scientists. They're artists. Brian D. I mean, uh, DeChambeau is one of the very few people that plays the tour that would be considered a scientist. He's interested in all that sort of stuff. The rest of the guys are players. They're interested in scoring. 
they I've seen way more good. There's there's less good players and more good swingers in the world out there because of the signs. Mm. And I try to, you know, if I have anything to impart to a youngster in here is let's let, I mean, let's get an efficient golf swing. Let's learn how to play the game. And there's fewer people. When I grew up, I spent all of my time on the golf course. Now I see so many kids that want to spend it all on the practice range, and you can't learn how to be a player on the practice range. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. No, I, I think that's accurate. You got to get out and play. You got to get out and score, right? I mean, that's that's the bottom line. And and that comes down to the player. I mean, you can, you know, you can get into the course management and the emotional control and those things. But look, I mean, you're the one hitting the ball. You're the one putting the, you know, getting the ball in the hole and adding it up at the end of the day. You got to make a score. Some guys are better at it than others. Um, and there's a there's an instinctive athletic part of that in golf. Overthinking, it's a matter of time where it's 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 going to catch up with you. And Bryson is the scientist today, and it's fascinating to watch. Um, but you have to be careful with that. Like that's not really for most, right? And it's it's you got to be careful with that much data coming into your brain and being able to process that and play that. I don't see that with John Rom. You know, in fact, John Rom's he has some coaches over here, but very seldom do you see him on tour. You know, he's got his longtime coach in Spain. Justin Thomas works with his dad. You know, I don't think it's ever too technical. Um, you know, Rory McIlroy very seldom has someone with him out there. You know, like these guys, like at the end of the day, it's like they're keeping it pretty scaled down and pretty simple. You know, yeah, put a track mat down. Let's see some numbers today. It's a little chilly, kind of feeling, you know, let's let's see what it is. Yeah, I'm about four or five yards shorter today. All right, I get that. That's easy. But let's not be grinding on attack angle uh, and spin and path and face and, you know, all of these numbers that, that you can get. So totally agree with you on uh, what you said there. So Travis, how do we balance it out with hacks with 15 handicaps, 20 <laughs> handicaps, right? Like I, I, you know, it's, it's always easy to say that, you know, a Hal Sutton that hits it as good as he does needs to, you know, shut all the data down and go play golf. Yeah. Um, what do you do? And that was one of the questions I had was how do you approach better players versus amateurs? But you know, one of the things we talked about in our last pod was like taking inventory of your game and saying, look, if you're a 15 handicap, do you hit it better than a 15 handicap? Is it your short game that's worse than a 15 handicap? Like what's the, what's above the line, what's below the line. And then you, you, you pick and choose. How do you work with guys that need swing overhauls that are just moving yeah. so inefficiently and they're going to have to be in their brain for a while and think about a lot of stuff to make the change? Well, I think when you're, you know, when you start getting into the mid handicaps, like the average handicap for a male is what, 15 or 16. Um, I think for a female, it's 29. I mean, you know, so you're, you start getting into these, these, these handicap into the teens and beyond and they're playing once a week or they're playing once a month, right? They have a life, they have kids, they have a job, they have a, they have a significant other. So it's when you're and, and that's really kind of where I've been, you know, with, with my business and the podcast and my online memberships and my training programs that we've had a lot of success with is speaking to those masses in a way that understanding that what their opportunities are, right? Is it, is it full swing? Is it short game or is it both? And when you look at the full swing and this is how I tell people this, and I watch their swing, 
I say, look, everybody has a pattern in their swing. And to a large degree, when I look at your pattern, it's going to suggest a certain probability of impact. All right, there's a probability of impact there. Like you take the club head inside with the face open and then you come over the top steep. I can pretty much tell you what's going to happen from there as far as the ball flight and based on what you're telling me, how much you play, what the probability of that impact is and within probably two or three points of your handicap of what it's going to be, right? So you can keep doing that because sometimes you're going to hit that little pull fade and it's going to be online. Sometimes you're going to wipe it and now you're going to miss it 15, 20 yards short. Sometimes the face is going to turn down. You're going to hit a hard pull. And that pattern is probably going to exemplify itself even more as the club gets longer. So you're losing distance and your driver becomes kind of your main issue. And they're like, well, how'd you know all that? So it was because that's what I do all day. It's what I look at all day. You know, So it's these patterns are not new. Some manage those patterns better than others, but most it's a certain level of probability. So when you get in there and you start rewiring it and you start getting the face a little more square and out in front of them, you know, now, okay, now what does that mean? Well, if you come over it, you're just going to hit poles. You're not going to hit the wipe anymore. You're just going to hit poles and it's going to force your hand to learn how to hit it a little more from the inside. This is just one example, but this is the progression that I think mid handicappers start to go through. And it starts to improve the probability of impact. And pretty soon they're like, wow, I don't hit that wipe anymore. In fact, I'm 10 yards longer and my driver's getting better. So now we're starting to move the needle the right way. So I think when you get into mid handicaps, if you can kind of, if you can show them, look, yeah, there's some things that need to be rewired, but there's a method to the madness. We've got to put it in the right order. Let's just start with A and B. And when you do A and B, here's probably what's going to happen. And then just kind of stay with it. And then we'll kind of get it into C. And then eventually, you know, you're not going to be that guy that was hitting those, you know, big wipes off to the right with the driver. So, yeah, I like to rewire and, and develop and technique. And I think technique plays into that with the handicaps as they get bigger. And I think the same thing with short game. It's funny how in short game, when you start just getting setups right understanding you know what just the wrist hinge and understanding where the you know where the club should finish and kind of creating an environment where they can hit the ground a little bit but the leading edge doesn't get caught in the ground and they can use the bounce a little bit and all of a sudden they're like okay i can hit that little medium trajectory shot and so much so much of it is just in the setup in getting them kind of rewired at address so i, I take a lot of joy in that and um, in, in the development of the player. And I think the technique starts to play more of a role in that and probably less of a role as you start getting into the skill sets of professional golfers, because they already have all that skill. Now it's just getting it to come out. And, and I don't think the technical side is probably the best way to go that, about that because you got to get the player and the instinctive side to come out. How do you, how do you do that? How do you build confidence in, you know, a plus two or plus five handicap that has enough ability to play on tour but hasn't ever made it? As far as what? As far as? Yeah, like just, I mean, how do, how do you build? We talked to, we talked to Azinger on here about self-belief and confidence mm -hmm. and how they're two different things. And so 
you know, how do you get a, um, you know, a high school kid who's really starting to play well at home, but hasn't taken it on the road yet. And, and is just not quite performing at the level that he's capable of. How do you get him to kind of get that out? Yeah, I think you have to stay the process. I think like if the coach and the player, assuming the process is correct, right? Like assuming what the track that you're on is the right one. I think you have to stay, you have to stay the course with that and let it kind of materialize, let the experience transpire and then learn from the subtleties that are happening until it eventually comes out. I've been through that process a number of times over the years. My probably business has been more on developing young players, junior players through high school and the college. Taylor Funk was one of them, Fred's son when, when he was here. And I can remember him, you know, Taylor was, was a good player, like when he was sixth, seventh, eighth grade. And then ninth, he started to kind of, t- and then pretty soon, like the 10th grade, he really started to, you could just see it kind of blossom. Like all of a sudden it's like, okay, this is going to be a D one golfer. Um, but it kind of took a while to get to that point. And there's a lot of other players that I think back that, you know, kind of take them a while to get to that point. I think there's a lot of late bloomers in golf and I think that's okay. You know, I, I don't think you can just kind of press them right now, even though things like it, it's there, it's just not maybe coming out yet. Right. They're, they're, they're making small mistakes that you, you look at and you coach up, but you can't press them to the point where they, they don't enjoy the game at that moment in time. Right. You have to keep the light on. You have to keep encouraging, keep believing in where you're going and then letting that transpire in bloom. And sometimes it's very late. You know, there's just, there's a lot of late bloomers in golf and honestly, that's okay. I kind of like the idea of a late bloomer in golf and they get to college and all of a sudden they're like playing the best golf that they've ever played. And then from there, maybe that projects them to something beyond that. But I think we see a lot of the other way where they kind of maybe peak in high school, get overly confident, get complacent, and then they get to college and everything's different. And then we see the burnout happen, which is unfortunate, but that, that seems to transpire as well. So Travis, when you're developing a young player, do you feel that you have to pursue them or they pursue you to keep the relationship going? You know, I, I don't teach quite as much as I used to, but when I was teaching full time every day, all day, um, it was, I would say pretty mutual really. Um, You know, I had my contingency of 30 players, 30 junior players, and, and it was, we were in constant interaction of, you know, golf and what they're doing and the tournaments and this and that. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's pretty mutual. And as a teacher, you're always trying to kind of layer in just a little more development, trying to secure certain things in the swing that you feel would be beneficial for them long-term and obviously developing the short game, developing putting and also playing, getting out and playing competitive. And that's never my experience here. And I think we're a bit insulated when you're at TPC Sawgrass and clientele that's kind of rolling through there, you know, these, these kids, they, they're pretty fortunate, right? Like they can, they have access to play a lot of great golf. They're playing a lot of tournament golf. And for the most part, they were all very motivated and would spend the time and put the time in 
um, to play. It's very competitive here in Florida in junior golf. So once you're kind of into it and you're going down that process, I found that that back and forth was pretty mutual and they were very much into what was happening right now and where that might lead them to. So was there a common denominator between the guys that made it and the guys that didn't make it in your mind? I think like making it to college and playing college golf. I think the ones that were very focused on that as being a goal, I think the majority of them made it, you know, like the goal was, yeah, I want to, I'm going to get to college. I'm going to, I'm going to get an education and I want to play in college. And then, you know, where it goes from there, it goes, right. If it, if I'm good enough to give it a go, I'll give it a go. If I'm not, I'm going to have a great degree and I'm going to pursue that. Um, so I think I, I look back, I think the ones that were, yeah, I want, I want to play college golf and, and very committed and focused on that. I'd say the majority of them made it. I think the ones that knew they were talented, knew they kind of liked the game, um, but, you know, maybe had other interests, right. And, and weren't quite as, you know, say razor focused, right. On the goal at hand was playing college golf. Those kind of spread out a little bit more. and, And I would say less of those ended up making it and playing collegiately. We talk a lot about agree with you more. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We were talking before this about, you know, desperation and how it felt like, like how it felt like in his day, there were more desperate players where they're now everybody's a bit more comfortable. Right. And so that's, we tell kids all the time when they come in here, if you're desperate to make it, you'll make it. If you're not, if there's, you've got to like, it's, it's school and golf and that's about it working out. And, 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 and really that's, that's all you can do. If you've got more interest, more distractions, you're not, you know, you're not having enough time. You're just not going to, you're not going to do it. When I was growing up, I used to love to hunt and fish and all the activities of the outdoors, you know, and when I finally decided I was going to play golf, I gave it all up. And every moment of extra time that I had, I played golf. And, you know, that was kind of what I saw all my friends do that were out there, you know. I mean, it's a sacrifice. To be good at this game, you have to sacrifice. You can't have it all. You know, and we live in a world right now where everybody wants everything. Give it all to me, you know. Golf really won't afford you that. (laughs) I think it's, I think that's spot on and as competitive as it is, if that's the goal. You better be working at it. You know, you better be grinding. You better be willing to make sacrifice and because that's what it's going to take to, you know, for you to be the best that you can be. And certainly in playing professional golf, there's, there's great sacrifice that goes into it. And being at TBC, that's, you'd see it, right? I mean, you see how much time y'all put, you spend into it. I mean, yeah. I don't think I've ever met anybody in my life that plays more golf than Fred ever. I mean, like, I was like, I don't even know how you play that much golf. I mean, my back hurts. Just you telling me the stories about you just played 56 holes. <laughs> like, how do you do all that? I mean, he yeah. just loves it and grinds and plays and it just, it's amazing. I just was amazed by how hard he, how much time and focus he put into it. It was just, it was, it was, it was really cool to see firsthand. Travis, what did you see from the the tour pros, like a breakdown between practicing and playing? Because you you mentioned VJ, there was a workhorse, and then obviously Fred worked at it pretty hard too. What, you know, I, I heard Claude Harmon say on his podcast that, you know, most of the players that he works with tend to play a ton. Bryson came out a couple of weeks ago and said he very rarely plays at all. What's the breakdown that you see? 
you know, I think it's, I think everything is so individualized now. I mean, I think VJ was a guy that liked practice more than play, at least from my perception, he was certainly looked like he was spending more time practicing. Um, I think Fred was a little more kind of 50, 50, you know, I look at today's players. I think, I think Bryson enjoys practicing and seeing numbers and seeing if he can move the needle and how fast he can swing it and those things. I think Bryson would probably be better served going out and just hitting a lot of wedges into greens and working on his short game shots around and being, you know, kind of lost in the golf course of, from a hundred yards on in. Um, you know, I think Brooks, although he's become a little more of a range rat, I think he's just, he just likes to play. I think Rom's pretty 50, 50. I think Spieth, Spieth kind of strikes me more as a player. You know, JT strikes me more as a player. Um, you know, these guys that I've interacted with a little bit. And, um, but I, I think it's a balance, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's pretty much a balance and it depends where you're at in your game. If you're struggling and there's some technical things that you need to iron out, then kind of grinding a little bit, maybe I think Brooks right now is a good example of that. I think Brooks was kind of going down the wrong way there with his swing struggling. And he had to spend some time on the range to work through it. And I think he's done that. Now he's kind of coming out on the other end. Um, I think there's times that, you know, how, you know, they kind of lose the putter a little bit and, and you grind a little bit more in the putting green, do some drills, get on the chalk line, just kind of simplify things, hit a lot of putts. So, yeah, I think it's a balance, but at the end of the day, the most important thing is getting out and playing and making the score. That's the most, that's the most important thing. And there's no substitute for the experience of going out and, and writing a number down. That's for sure. So you mentioned online lessons. Um, if you could, if you could eradicate a fault that you see from a majority of your students and never, never have to see it again, never have to deal with it again, what, what fault would you be <laughs> eliminated in everybody's golf swing? It'd be the inside takeaway, right? I mean, when I first got in the business, it was the open club face, right? Everybody opens the face. Now, I don't think as many open it, but I think they take it inside. You know, the club head gets behind the hands early. There's just not many that have played well from there. Raymond Floyd was one. Um, and there's been a few, but not many. So I, I think that inside takeaway is, is a tough one for the amateur player because when the club head gets behind them early, it tells the body not to turn as much. It, and, and when you tell the body not to turn as much, then you start getting some other body faults, some, some reverses and different things that we all have seen on the driving range. And then from there, it's inevitable that that player has got to come over it. Right. So they kind of get it in behind them and then they got to come over it. And that's not exactly what we're after. Right. That's not what we want to see. We'd rather see it the other way where the club heads a little out in front of them. And then from there, now they can make a better turn and then the club can work back down a little bit underneath that. So the other thing is, is sometimes like usually like the better player that gets it inside, like they'll kind of get it in and shut and then they'll bring it back down from the inside, very shallow. And of course they'll hit a lot of push hooks and that's better than the pull slice. But, you know, again, kind of cleaning that up is better served for them. The, the higher handicap will get it in. Maybe the face will open a little and then they'll come over it and they'll hit wipes and that's not conducive through the bag as they get to the driver. So the driver, like the driver is the most enjoyable club to hit. So when you're talking about enjoying the game, that inside takeaway, you know, you get, you get it in behind it and shut better players swing from the inside. 
They hit a lot of pushes. They hit a lot of hooks. So they get, they get frustrated with that. Then the higher handicap takes it in and opens it. They come over it. They hit a lot of pop flies and weak slices. So it's like that inside takeaway is problematic. And I see it all the time. And what I find is when I clean it up, get that club handle them right in front of them. Now they can make that better turn. Now they can get it working around them. And now it's like, okay, now it makes sense. I've got room to come down from the inside. And it's just a nice domino effect from there. So I have a question here. You mentioned the open face used to be the problem. Well, that's because we've moved past the poor teaching that everybody gave us on early stage where we, they thought toe up was uh, square. Yeah. And, you know, my group was, came up into the toe up is square and Hogan talking about form rotation. <laughs> yeah. So if you have toe up, you better have forearm rotation. And then if you teach that guy, to square that face in the backswing, most likely on the downswing, he's still going to have forearm rotation. So there's a lot, you know, you know, I've learned this the hard way. Yeah. Even with my own game is that it's hard to uh, process all of that when you've been something for a long time. Right. And uh, so, you know, teaching a young player, uh, the new golf swing or the modern golf swing versus teaching somebody, you know, 55, 60 years old, that has been a really good player and he's got that toe up in his backswing. That'd be a hard change for a guy yes. like that. You agree with that? Oh yeah. Anytime you're messing, you know, some of the easiest changes for higher handicaps is fixing the club face. Some of the hardest changes for your really good players is Changing the club face. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. That's pretty, that's pretty strong. Yep. You know, I mean, that's because you're, you're messing with the steering wheel. And so for a better player, when you mess with the steering wheel, like, you know, you got, you got your work cut out for you because, because the better player knows how to get, knows how to steer it, even though it might be toe up, he knows how to steer it. He knows how to make it work. So when, when you change that face, you better be ready to get in there and change the other part of it. And that can be a very clunky process. And one that I, I would probably run the other way from. <laughs> I run from the, that job in a hurry. Travis, what, what's your take on speed? Um, how do we, how do you get your students to, to swing at it faster? You mentioned the Fred Funk story, but how do you, how do you get guys to move at it faster without necessarily blowing the whole machine up or, or sacrificing too much accuracy? You know, I'll answer that with the middle handicap. You know, I think the concept of, of it's like the, it's like the old man swing, right? You think of the old man swing as we get older, we, we tend to just kind of stay down. Like our spine just stays down and we take it back and our arms kind of lift and we may turn a little, but the idea is that the spine's staying kind of down in flexion, the lower body, the legs aren't moving much. And it's like the swing just condenses, right? It just, it just condenses down and it's almost like just suffocating to the point where all this potential energy, you can just see it going away. Stop and then we try to manufacture, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then we try to manufacture the speed coming down, right? So we try to go at it faster coming down. 
So I like to feed the engine going back. I, I'm, you know, I'm probably lengthening out more swings than I'm shortening, especially as people get older, teaching them to turn the hips, turn the right hip, change of knee flex, let the trail knee kind of straighten up a little bit, let the left knee come across, let the spine open up, extend a little bit. And as we're doing that, they feel, of course, different but they don't feel like they're staying down. They feel like they're kind of elongating up. And as they kind of elongate up, they're, they're still looking at it. So they're not, they're not you know, standing up. But that right leg lengthening, the spine extending and opening. Now, all of a sudden, they, when you show them that, they're like, oh, wow, that looks really good. Like I've actually made a turn and my arms in the club are like behind me now, like around me. And from there, you've got a lot more potential energy to deal with. So I find lengthening people out in the backswing gives them all of this energy coming through and stuff that they can, that they can work with. And usually I got to tell you, usually I don't think they lose much accuracy either. They, they tend to hit it longer and straighter. I don't think those two have to be as independent as one would think. Now, if you're going after it like a long drive person, that's a different story. I mean, like, you know, I mean, if you're, 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 you're cranking back there, that's a different story. But I think for the mid handicap, lengthening them out a reasonable amount, I, I tend to think they get longer and they, and they're as accurate. So it, it doesn't have to be a sacrifice. Wouldn't you agree how that most of our say 50 and older crowd that's coming here, especially when you and I have done assessments together, very few have we shortened, right? I think we would agree with just about everything Travis said there. Yeah, we we tend to lengthen them out if we can, if they can. Yeah. You know, yeah. one of the things that I find on my own game is that I won't get my back to the target on the golf course. I'll get a little bit tighter and not yeah. want to make a mistake, you know. And, you know, whenever I was playing my best, that was one of the things that I worked on all the time was getting a complete turn. And, you know, yep, but there's a lot to go for that. I'll be 64 my next birthday, Travis, and that gets harder and harder to do. And, you know, uh, I used when I played the tour, you know, I had some chiropractor working on my back every day so Mm -hmm. that I could. They worked on my hips every day so I could make a complete turn. So that guy that's you know, sitting in an office all the time and going out to play one or two times a day. And he's 58 to 60 years old. It's hard for him to make that big turn. And he's sitting this way, right? He's down, bucks down. Exactly. And it's like, your golf swing looks like that. That's exactly right. <laughs> oh, and, and, and Travis, I like your take on this too. Don't you think that is, it's a little bit of a, like, one of the things we say about distance and, and the mock three guys say about distance is it's a mindset thing. Um, and a lot yeah. of the, a lot of house generation grew up where fairways were so important. And now, you know, these 20, 15 to 25 year olds are growing up thinking that there doesn't matter about the fairway, go bomb it as far as you can. And one of the challenges is getting the, the older generation to swing at it without fear of where it, where it might go. And, and how would you say, I mean, you can go, you know, when you were playing a, a year or two ago, you could get to 107, 108, 109, even 110, but you weren't, it wasn't yeah. comfortable for you because you were, you're used to trying, you're, you're in that comfort zone hitting 10, 11 fairways around. Right. No, I think well, it's spot on. I think we have that internal governor. That's the governor 
kind of says, no, this is the speed we're moving at because we're comfortable with this. And then you, as you kind of chip away at that governor and you lengthen and you go faster, you realize, you know, yeah. I'm actually about as accurate. I'm still as accurate. You know, I'm like, I'm not losing back. I just gained eight yards and I'm hitting the same amount of fairways. So you have to chip away at that governor. And I think that governor gets stronger as you get older. You know, I think you just, we get, you know, again, in conservative. And um, so you have to chip away at it. I, I know from my own experience in working on speed training, that's the case. Like my governor is telling me here and I'm trying to go past it. And as I go past it, my swing looks, I like the way it looks and my speed goes up and my centerness of contact on the face is still pretty good. And like, you know, it's still right there in front of me. I, I feel more out of control, but I don't, I'm not really losing much control. And it's kind of a weird thing to say, right? That you have to lose a little bit of control. But at the same token, I think back to when I'm playing really well and I'm instinctive and I'm just cruising and I'm not thinking. Like I get to that point where it's like, man, I feel like maybe I can't, I feel like I can't hit it hard enough because I'm my swing feels so good. So I'm just, there is no governor at that point. And you're just reaching back and cranking and you're not worrying about anything. Those are that mindset is wonderful. But yeah, we kind of get in our own way, I think, with the speed and the governor. And I think today's kids coming out, I don't, I, I think they're, the governor is less of an existence because they've been trained to hit it so hard early. Today's game in the PGA Tour is not as penal off the tee, not as much rough. So why not? Why not hit it 330 down there and have nine iron out of the rough while the rest of them are hitting at 295 and they've got six iron out of the fairway, right? I mean, why not? Like it's, we're not going to penalize them to do that. Now, some courses do, but for the most part, there's a lot of bombers paradise where it's like, look, I'll roll the dice. I'm in the rough. I'm in the rough, but I'm hitting my driver. So here it comes. And they're taking lines that are absurd, right? I mean, just absurd lines and where they're aiming it and hitting it. So your governor runs in direct correlation with the kind of success you're having. So the more successful you have, the more you will step your governor up. And, uh, yeah, I like that. So in my generation, we grew up with driver heads that were about that big, not <laughs> that big. They weren't very forgiving. They were heavy and we had to be a lot more precise at that time than you do today. The manufacturers have built, a lot of forgiveness into golf clubs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's not to say that I think my generation was better. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say we had different boundaries mm -hmm. than the guys do today. And, you know, if, if I were teaching my son, which he doesn't hardly play golf, but if I did, I, I would have said, hit it as hard as you can. I'll teach yeah. you how to hit it straighter later. And I grew up in the era where I tried to hit it straight first and then add a little distance to it. That's a harder way to do it. Agreed. So, so tell me this, we've done about 50 podcasts so far. Okay. I know you've done quite a few. Who's been your favorite guest that you've ever had on? <laughs> oh, boy, <clears throat> That's a tough one. Hal, I, I got to tell you, I'm a huge Lanny Watkins fan. Um, he's been on my podcast, Hal, I'm going to have you on. And I had, I had Lanny on during the Ryder cup 
and we had, and he just told me Ryder cup stories and I eventually had to let him go because I was like, okay, I think we've been at this for like an hour and a half and I'm sure you got other things to do. And I could listen to, <laughs> I could listen to Ryder cup stories and you talk for e- easily the rest of the day. Um, so he was great fun. Yeah. I, I really uh, enjoyed that. And I, you know, I enjoy, gosh, it's a, it's a really, it's a really good question. I think, you know, we have a lot of the top teachers on that I think are really talented. Um, I, I like, I like weeding out some of the teachers that people don't know about. Um, like a Justin Parsons, who I think is an up and comer, you know, who, who has done a lot of great work with, uh, a lot of players, uh, a name, Brad Pullen is a young teacher that has taught Sam Burns since he was like six years old. Um, so the, the I, li- I like talking to those guys because, you know, you have to kind of weed them out like, Hey, jump on. I know who you are. All right. I guess, you know, and they come on and they, and it's, it's really good insight on developing a player like a Sam Burns from, you know, the age of six on up to where he is now, which he's a, he's an up and coming rising star. Jamie Mulligan did the same thing with Patrick Cantlay, you know, when he was young. And so I, I, I like listening to, um, I like listening to those stories a lot, but Lanny was, Lanny's just a great interview, right? He's just, he's got stories. <laughs> well, he was out there for a long time. He played yeah. at a really high level of, for a long time. And, uh, Lanny likes to talk too so his gambling stories now are you know amazing him and uh you know him and arnie and right they used to they used to play in the monday tuesday games with as i understand you know hale would play and raymond and you know tom watson and lanny were a good team he said they never lost 15 years and I mean, it's just, you know, it's fascinating to listen. I tell you about the time that Raymond and I beat them at uh, Augusta and uh, wore them out, and I made Lanny oh. pay me on the green. He <laughs> liked to be big showman. He liked for everybody to see him get paid, you know? Yeah. So, Lanny, yeah. Lanny told me, he said, I don't have the money right now. I said, go get it. I'll be on the putting green. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. All right, Travis, yeah. I, got, I got one more question for right. you. I saw it. We saw a Twitter post a couple weeks ago by Jake McNulty asking if, if Jim Furyk walked through your door at age 13, swinging the way Jim Furyk does, swinging the way he does, he has forever. Would you change him? Why would, if you would have changed him, would you ruin him? Now the, the interesting part of this, we had Jim on the podcast and we asked him this question I believe, and how how to some extent believes that Jim was what made Jim Furyk was his mindset, his belief, his discipline, his pre-shirt routine, all the internal stuff, and not necessarily his golf swing. I believe that if you got him early enough, you could you could tweak it, you could make a change, and he could still be, be Jim Furyk. What do you say? I mean, it's probably the case. I mean, he he was a special person. I don't think I would have changed. Jim was a good young player who had a lot of great club face control. Yes, it looks different but the face didn't take on a lot of rotation, very stable through the impact zone. I think the one thing with Jim that's fascinating, no one stands closer to the ball than him. So therefore no one has to stay in their spine angle better than him. Like if that guy's hips move towards the ball, that, I mean, a fraction, he would miss it. He would. So you just look at a swing and Travis, from the standpoint of face real, control and real posture. Quick. 
real quick, yeah. Travis, what I would say too, is one thing that he said on the podcast that I thought was interesting is he said that he wasn't, he was never known to be that good of a ball striker until he got on tour. He, he was always known as this short game wizard. And then he kind of felt like he developed into a ball striker. I thought that was just an interesting thing that not many people yeah. talk about. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an interesting question. I, I'd like to think that I wouldn't, you know, I think I would like to think that I would incrementally have done what was necessary based off what I was seeing at the time, rather than, all right, Jim, we got to blow this thing up. You know, let's, we got to get the shaft here, left arm, got to get it more around you. We got to get you deeper into your right hip. Like, you know, like you start listing off the three or four things that are the obvious. I don't think I would have had that conversation for sure out of the gate. I think you can incrementally move the needle a little bit here and there without having to say, look, let's rebuild the whole thing. Now he might've said he wasn't one of the better ball strikers, but look, he was, sure. he was I'm, I'm sure he was, he was doing just fine. Yeah. He might've hit a few hooks and be like, Hey, when you hit that hook, let's just kind of get at the exit more over here. Right. <laughs> a little more to the left. Well, so you made an interesting comment that no one stood close to the ball than him. Yeah, no. So one. I worked with Byron Nelson for about three years. And one of the things that Byron impressed on me was for every person he saw stand too close to it, he saw a thousand stand too far from. It. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. So, I mean, is, is distance from the ball? I mean, every club is longer. I mean, we're playing with 46 inch drivers now. Back in the day, we played with 43 inch drivers you know, you're going to get further from the ball when you get yeah. longer clubs. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't have much more time here, but what do you, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, incrementally you're going to move back, but I think for the most part, most are standing too far. You know, I, I, I think I'm, I'm definitely inching them in to be a little bit closer um, at address. I mean, if you stand too far from it, then when you go to hit it, I mean, everything's, I mean, you're just more likely everything's going to be moving towards a golf ball. Right. So, you know, you get in a little closer. Now you can push back. You can make some room. And, and, and no one, you know, kind of pushed back and stayed back better than Jim with his hips because he's standing right on top of the ball. I mean, if his pelvis would have went towards the ball a centimeter, he'd, he'd whiff it. So, right. so yeah, I, I think generally speaking, I'm trying to inch people in a touch closer. I think the driver, you could probably get away with being a touch further from it um, in generally speaking just because it's, you know, it's teed up a little bit. Well, Travis, thanks for being on the yeah, thank you. Right Club Today podcast. We have enjoyed your insight and uh, good luck. Merry Christmas. Yes, uh, thank you too. Yep. Check See out you. the uh, check out the Stripe Show podcast. Everybody listening, listening to this at home. Um, he's got some good guests. He's got Chris Como coming up soon, he said. So yes. Uh, awesome. Yeah, we got Billy Horschel on um, today, and then we have um, Chris on Thursday. So it should be good. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Travis, right. for coming on. Thanks, thanks guys. Travis. Appreciate it. Uh-huh. Be the right club today. Yes!